want to ask you to find a Bible. Um, if you have one with you that you brought or on your device, if not, there's one in the pew racks there. And I want you to turn to the, um, the third chapter of the book of Acts. Now, in the New Testament, that's the fifth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. It was written by Luke. It's designed to be a two-part series. Luke-Acts is a continuation of the gospel narrative and then the actions of the disciples. Or as somebody told me this, this week, is that the Holy Spirit's way of telling us to get our act together? Maybe so. Maybe so. The book of Acts does that. I want to tell you a story about um, what precedes our reading for today that's printed in your order of worship. It's, it's a miracle story. In the third chapter of Acts, we've come out of the Pentecost event and what Luke tells us, the picture that Luke is painting for us, he's the patron saint of the arts, he's painting this picture for us and clashing two things together, one of which is a beggar that's seated outside the gates to the temple. It's called the beautiful gate, right? And day in, day out, night after night, here sat this beggar paralyzed with his hands up asking for money. And people would come in and out of the temple. They would go in and out and, and, and do their trades and see one another. And most of them probably overlooked the man, didn't notice him, had seen him their whole life, and they kept walking. Well, then along comes Peter and John, and sure enough, this man says, hey, give me some money. Peter and John say, we, we don't have any gold or silver, but what we do have is Jesus Christ. And then they said something that is so incredible. They said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up, rise up, resurrect up. And Peter reached out his hand and he helped the man up. And the man was ecstatic by his new condition by his transformation, that he began not only running and shouting, but dancing in the streets, so much so that everyone who otherwise had walked past him said, what is going on? And Luke tells us, with wonder and amazement, the people saw what happened. We pick up in, in verse 11 of chapter 3, listen for the word of the Lord. While the man clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he said, You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety we made the man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release Jesus. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses to this, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and whom you know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, friends, I know that, that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had told through the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. So, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Quite a story, quite an indictment by St. Peter. Finish this uh, phrase for me. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You got it. Third law of, of Moses, uh, Moses, third law of, <laughs> could have been, of motion given to us by Sir Isaac Newton. Object A exerts force on object B. Object B exerts that same force. It can be something as smashing as hitting a baseball. It can be something like a book lying on a table. Same, same principle, same law. Well, I've been thinking a lot about Mr. Newton's third law of motion. I've been thinking about it in light of having finished the first and second rounds of my COVID-19 vaccination. I was warned about that, by the way. I was warned by you and all that I had read and the sweet, nice nurse who said, Mr. Cooper, you might experience a reaction from this second shot. <laughs> you think? I had a baseball under my skin and I had a rash that would not relent. And Mr. and Miss Moderna made up an 11th commandment, thou shalt not move. And I followed that commandment for about 24 hours, right? Now, granted, the alternative to me not receiving the vaccination could have been much more perilous. I encourage those of you who want a vaccine, get the shot if you so choose. But I've been thinking about that. The idea of reaction. Maybe I could have predicted it. I could have avoided it had I wanted to. Unlike pollen or the effects that my ear, nose, and throat have from cats, they have this reaction that I cannot control versus reactions to my body that I can control. If I eat in moderation and don't gorge myself with pizza, barbecue, and sweet tea, my clothes don't mysteriously shrink like they do sometimes, right? Some reactions we can control, some are unavoidable. Some reactions are good. Others are so emotionally charged that they, they do harm. Our emotions react to outside variables too, like politics and relationships. Grief causes our emotions to react. Wedding day, birth announcements, baptisms of beautiful children. They cause us to react. The third chapter of Acts is full of reactions, but also responses. And I've said that a time or two from this pulpit, that so much of, of life as we approach it, sometimes minute by minute, right, can be about a reaction or a response. How will we react? How will we respond? What is the difference? Well, I put some cold water on Smith just now, and his body naturally reacted. But Smith, under the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of his family and his church, will now be responding to grace the rest of his days. Amen. So too is it true of our lives. We can react we can respond. Peter and John saw a situation where a man needed to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And at the very name, he was able to get up and walk by faith. It's a miracle. None of us would doubt that. Peter and John were 
we're never interested in the reaction of the man or the reaction of the crowd. That's not why they went to the front porch on the world's greatest stage at Solomon's portico and, and stood there. They didn't stand there for a reaction. They stood there as a response to God's grace in their lives, as if to say, look what Christ has done for me. Look what Christ can do for you. I wonder what the reaction was of the crowd that day. The crowd is, is a lot of fun to study in Bible studies. Uh, if you want to study for your covenant group, your Sunday school class, whatever the case might be, look at the crowds in the gospel. Follow the crowds and look at their reactions. Read about their responses. Because the idea in all the gospel writers is that we are the crowd. It is us. I suppose, seeing this man hopping about, running and dancing and shouting, they must have been saying to one another, see, he was faking it all along. He was just trying to get our money. He should be so ashamed of himself. That is an emotionally charged reaction to something that God did to transform that man's life. Maybe it would be like our neighbors at the exit ramp sitting with us one day at Wednesday night supper or wearing a, a choir robe, we would be amazed at their transformation. Would we call it a miracle and an act of God? I tend to believe that Peter and John saw what was going on in this man's life as a, a pointer sign, if you will. That's the power of, of resurrection stories about which we read in the Gospels and, and in the Acts of, of the disciples in the book of Acts. They're all pointer signs that point to Jesus Christ not being in the tomb, but being out and raising to life dead stories and dead relationships and, and dead challenges and dead parts of every community. And I think that Peter and John, they weren't opportunistic in a, in a bad sense. But they saw this opportunity to give glory to God and God alone. And they didn't hesitate. Peter and John, under the power and under the authority of the resurrected Christ, saw the crowd assembled, thought about their reactions just a few days prior, because that same crowd would have said, Hosanna. And then that same crowd would have said, crucify him. And here this same crowd is gathered with wonder and amazement, wondering what it all means, amazed by the fact that this man is standing and no longer paralyzed. But there's something deeper that's happening here because there's several forms of healing that are going on. One is a man who was once relegated to a mat, begging for his life outside church, is now standing before the very congregation. The other is an ordinary fisherman named John who heard the call of Christ to follow me, not knowing where it would lead him, but all of a sudden now his ordinary life pre-resurrection has been transformed by the power of resurrection and he's standing giving a speech before the masses. And Peter! Same fishing story, just a few steps up the road from John. Jesus called Peter Satan. He also called him the pillar of the church. 
He also predicted that Peter would deny him, and he did, and he fled, and he had to be, Peter did, restored back into the fold with Jesus. So standing before the crowd that day are actually three stories of transformation. One is a physical healing. The other is an ordinary life now doing something extraordinary. The other, the third, is Peter's restoration back into the family, if you will, back into relationship with Christ. It's all a way of saying that the power and presence of the resurrected Christ does not give up on people. It will not. Christ will not give up on whatever it is that entombs God's people, whether it's financial struggles, whether it's grief, whether it's marital problems, whatever it is, whether it's prodigal children or prodigal parents, the power of resurrection will not give up on people. Amen? Amen. So I'm just wondering... If what we do is we tend to relegate stories, we tend to box stories like, this is nice, this was, we can keep it here around the year 33 AD. Or we can look at scripture as God's living word having something to say to us today. It's both and. Because I think Peter and John were inviting the crowd to gather around that day, and the crowd has gathered here today under the same wooing of the same Holy Spirit to move past emotionally reactive tendencies about Jesus and toward a life that authentically responds to Jesus Christ. There's a difference. The world has plenty, plenty of people who will react we need more who will respond. Maybe that's why the text concludes with that sentence, repent and turn from your sins. You know that word repent. You know what it means. We've talked about it. It means do a, a complete 180. Change. Turn. Reactions are short-lived. I don't have the uh, golf ball on my shoulder anymore. I don't have the rash anymore. I'm tired, but not for the same reason. That's a reaction. The response is a lifetime decision to follow Jesus Christ. So we think about the, the importance of, of Easter people and what it means to be an Easter church. Easter people allow transformation to become proclamation. And proclamation, it's going to require some innovation if we're going to lead people to celebration. Reminds me of a story like... Uh, little Margaret, she was six years old, and she came and she just jumped in the car after Sunday school one day. She was all excited, and her father said, what in the world is going on? She said that she had learned the story of, of the Passover, and it totally fascinated her. He said, really? Well, tell me about the Passover that you learned in Sunday school. Well, Moses was about to, you know, to take the Jews out of Egypt, and suddenly the Israeli Air Force appeared with their thundering jets, and they bombed Egypt, and the Egyptian forces, they tried to send out their helicopters, and the Israeli Air Force shot them down, and at that point, Moses was able to cross the ocean. Uh, to which her father said, really? You learned that in Sunday school? Six-year-old Margaret said, no, but if I told you the real story, you wouldn't believe me. Right? Authentic stories of transformation that lead to proclamation 
that rely on innovation to help people celebrate in life are sometimes more unbelievable than anything the greatest authors in this world could write. But I know that resurrection power and presence is just as real now as it ever has been. And the reason I know is because we've distributed nearly 75 boxes to moms who are incarcerated. And it sounds like it's just a shoebox. What difference is that going to make? Well, the contents of it are, are all means of God's grace. And the letters that are going in there are, are a way of saying, I know you feel entombed. I know you feel hopeless. I know that you feel like there's not a, a way. But the good news is Christ has overcome all things and can change all stories. You've done that this week. We have made a difference in 75 lives this week. Last week, 23 teenagers said yes to Jesus Christ, and if that isn't a sign that Christ is not dead, but raising to life new voices and new stories to change the world, I don't know what is. This past Wednesday, I was, I was honored to attend an event down on Clay Street, the United Methodist Children's Home under Dr. Blake Horn's direction unveiled its new vision by becoming Embrace Alabama Kids. It, it gives them a wider platform to help raise up and, and resurrect and to heal children who have been in abusive situations. Because of our generosity as a church and churches like us, we get to partner in that redemptive, resurrecting story. But the, one of the most beautiful things was the backdrop to it all. Local artists had painted a mural that was full of the diverse and beautiful, smiling, bubbly faces of children from all over the community. And it was painted on the side of a building that's dilapidated and falling. And there's a rubble parking lot. And I was just arrested as I'm sitting there thinking, my gosh, this is a sign of resurrection. That the rubble doesn't win. That beautiful things can come from that which is so desolate. Because an Easter church, an Easter people, proclaims that Christ is at work in all of the world to paint beautiful murals where death and destruction exist. An Easter church is committed to doing two things, and I'll close with this. We're committed to proclaiming and bearing witness to Jesus Christ through our words and our deeds and through our stories of transformation. And that proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, it has to include a prophetic voice which speaks truth to power by calling for an end to gun violence, an end to racism, an end to systemic problems. That's the prophetic voice. But that same voice of proclamation must be evangelical and invitational. They're not adverse or or poles of one another, these models of, of Christianity, they're the same cloth. And it's that same cloth that we know to be scriptural holiness. We wrap ourselves in it to advocate for the least, the last, the lost, the lonely, those begging at the gates, and then to help them up and to proclaim transformation together and to invite others to be a part of it. That's what's happening in Acts. It's one eye toward social holiness and social justice. It's another eye toward evangelicalism and radical hospitality. The second thing is that Easter church submits solely, solely 
to the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's a tough challenge for us. We have a lot of authorities in our lives. Things, entities, calendars to whom we, we yield. And when we do that, Christ ceases to be the one who leads us. To which authority does your life respond? To which authority does your life react? The power of Jesus' name can never be suppressed. It raises up paralysis in all different forms of fear, of shame, of guilt. It provides healing. It persists in proclaiming and persevering that Christ is ever-present. And the church responds. We always have. The British minister, W.E. Sangster, he began to lose his voice uh, in the mid-1950s, and he began to lose a little bit of his mobility as well. Uh, he had this disease that caused uh, progressive muscular atrophy, and he recognized that the end of, of his life was drawing near. So he devoted himself to praying and to writing and to being present with family and friends. And he prayed one time uh, in his journal, as he noted. He said, Lord, let me stay in the struggle. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general. Just give me a regiment to lead. Eventually his voice failed completely and his legs, they lost their use as well. But on an Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, W.E. Sangster took a pen and he wrote his daughter a letter. And in that letter it said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Brothers and sisters, we are Easter people. Your story matters and can change someone else's life. We are under the power and the presence and the authority of Christ and Christ alone to help raise up stories of transformation. So by leaping, or by dancing, or by running, or by speaking, or by singing, I pray that we would let God use our life to convey transformation for the world. Be an Easter story for someone else this week. Thanks be to God.